This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast that features lectures and conversations that happen at UC Berkeley. Find more talks at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Without further ado, my name is Dan Mogoloff. I work here on campus in the Office of Communications and Public Affairs and really delighted to be joined tonight by New Yorker reporter and author Andrew Morantz and Chancellor Carol Christ and Ed Wasserman, who's the dean of our School of Graduate Journalism. Um, I, graduate School of Journalism, I should say. Um, I should note that we first met Andrew, uh, Chancellor Christ and I, two years ago. Um, when that was our year of living dangerously here at Berkeley during the free speech circus that was kicked off with the aborted Milo Yiannopoulos event in January 2017 um, and then sort of continued to burn at a low rate until that fall when uh, Mr. Yiannopoulos said he'd be coming back to campus with a who's who of conservative speakers, something that proved to be uh, false or a sham at best. Um, But... Uh, Prior to that, Andrew had asked to be embedded with us, and Chancellor Chris made what many thought was a pretty risky decision, um, but resulted in probably one of the best pieces of journalism that would would actually happened here, Um, and raised some issues that we'll be talking about having to do with free speech, which were addressed directly and also tangentially in the book. so, but we're going to, I really want to start tonight just sort of talking to Andrew, just talking a little bit, little bit about the book. Obviously, it just came out. I know you can't sort of tip, tip too much. When I first talked to Andrew after reading the book, I said it sort of brought to mind Colin Powell, and he asked why. And I said I recalled that line when Colin Powell was asked how he was sleeping before the war in Iraq. And he said, like a baby, I wake up every two hours screaming. Um, and that's how it's been since I've read the book. Um, I, that might not be the best sales pitch, but it is, that, it is that disturbing and expansive. So, I mean, Andrew, it's a huge subject and about Internet and the democracy and journalism. How did you get to it? What drew you to it? Yeah, it was kind of... Uh multiple subjects in one, in a way, because I was sort of interested in what the Internet was doing to us psychologically, socially, societally, politically, you know, before there was such a thing as Donald Trump political candidate. It was just, you know, I, I was looking at kind of clickbait entrepreneurs and what was happening to the kind of degradation and coarsening of just media and social media and kind of what happens if... Um, social media becomes purely Darwinian in the sense that, you know, there's this idea of fitness that I play around with in the book. You know, there's fit in the sense of what's fit to print. But what's fit to print only means something if there are people making that decision. If it's just algorithms making that decision, then fitness becomes more of a survival of the fittest kind of thing. And that seemed like a pretty dangerous thing for a democracy that relies on popular public opinion, as James Madison said. So um, I started looking at that. And then Trump came down the escalator, and then there was this whole thing <laughs> that I was like, well, there, there was immediately the chorus of he can't win, he won't win, we're on this inevitable arc of history that leads uh, inexorably toward progress, and that had two effects on my life. One was that I made a lot of bets and made a lot of money, and two was that I... Um, what, wait, what kind of bets? He's going to win. <laughs> wow. And, and two was that I didn't collect on most of them because I felt too bad. But the, se- but the second one was that I like, started looking at um, 
the rest of the internet that was not my own filter bubble, which it turns out you can just actually find if you look for it. And uh, it was incredibly disturbing and scary and full of misinformation, full of open bigotry and full of covert bigotry and full of all kinds of stuff that um, nobody really seemed to have a clear handle on and that everybody was kind of ignoring because it was sort of you know, beneath the dignity of serious people to look at it, which in a sense it is beneath the dignity of anyone to look at it. On the other hand, we got to look at unpleasant stuff sometimes. So um, I started sort of doing two kinds of embedding, one with uh, the social media companies who were setting up this system that I thought was bound to fail, this kind of blithely, recklessly idealistic system that just sort of said, we're going to put all this freedom and all this speech into a giant bucket and we'll just let the marketplace of ideas sort it out and ultimately it will redound to the good, which didn't seem to me like a great idea. And then also with the gate crashers, I call them the people who were using these systems for their malign intentions. And weirdly, they let me hang out with them even though I was pretty clear about not liking them very much. And I spent three years hanging out with them and seeing what they do up close. And uh, a lot of it was kind of scary. And some of it was actually just darkly comic and pathetic and uh, vivid. And I just felt that I had to, we had to tell the story in detail of what these people do behind closed doors. Just looking at their online personas wasn't enough. So I, not that I'm a pure masochist, but I did think it was worth it to actually spend lots of hours with them because the way they present themselves online is not the whole picture of who they are. So who are they? I mean, so you're talking, you talk about throughout the book, alt-right, alt-light. Um, they all seem to be, they seem to be largely male, disaffected. But, and I had to wonder, who are the people, what was your impression of being with them and, and sort of to what extent are they, are they a cause or a symptom? Uh, both. I mean, I think they're mostly a symptom, but they're also a cause in the sense that they can take fringe, noxious ideas and propel them into the mainstream kind of with shocking effectiveness. Like I would sit, so one of the people that, I basically would try to track every noxious meme I could find. And meme, I mean in the Richard Dawkins sense of like any infectious idea. I would try to track those back to their source whenever I could and find the person and say, can I sit in your living room? So, I would, uh, so for instance, one guy in Orange County, California, I spent um, a lot of time in his living room uh, watching him just sort of take, you know, pre-election, for example, he would decide, I want to make it more, less likely that people will vote for Hillary, more likely that people will vote for Trump, so I'm going to create a subliminal association between Hillary and disease. Uh, and so I'm just going to put out you know, memes that make it look like she's frail and sick and disgusting because, you know, and I would ask him, why are you choosing that? And he would say, well, I have all these more kind of substantive critiques of her, but they're not, um, they're not as engineered to go viral. Back to the Darwinian fitness thing. The way that the architecture of the social internet is built, it's built around emotional engagement. So disgust and fear and alarm are emotions that make people click and share, whether it's sharing out of agreement or sharing out of disagreement, a kind of brow-furrowing concern over one's relationship to Saudi Arabia or something is not engineered to do that. So I, so I would just watch him, you know, start a Periscope video on his iPad and say, okay, you know, let's get a couple thousand people in here to think about what hashtag we should use. They'd pick a, a good viral hashtag. They'd get that hashtag trending on Twitter. This would all just sort of be happening right in front of me. And then the hashtag would trend on Twitter, and he'd say, okay, I need to make sure 
Matt Drudge sees this, so it gets on the Drudge Report. From there, it's going to get on Hannity. From there, it's going to get on CNN. And then it's going to be in the newspaper. And he had kind of reverse engineered the entire media matrix, as he called it, to the point where I would then wake up the next morning and read the newspaper, and it would have his fingerprints on it in a way that I wouldn't have believed was possible if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes. And this is not a guy whose fingerprints you want on the national discourse. But there it is. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing in our laws and our constitution that says that the national discourse will be handled well, will be handled effectively. All the, we'll get to this, but all the liberties in the constitution are, are, that pertain to this are negative liberties, not positive ones. So you just, um, it, it, that, that naive faith that the techno-utopians had or that we all kind of, I think, tacitly sometimes have that the marketplace of ideas will sort it out. I was watching the marketplace of ideas at work and it was not being sorted out. So I just felt like somebody has to document how this is happening because that faith that we have that the system is going to basically function and self-correct is just totally misplaced. So just a couple more questions then I want to open it up and bring in uh, Dean Wasserman and Chancellor Christ. What was your conclusion? I mean, how afraid, how afraid should we be? Um, I mean, some of what's here is really profoundly disturbing, but I kept bouncing back and forth between there's some isolated kooks, but you know, then I think of you know, this line from one of the New York Times reviews, and she writes in this review, as disturbing as these specific stories are, what filled me with a creeping sense of dread were parts of antisocial that incisively describe how a Darwinian information environment has degraded to the point where it now selects for people who can command the most attention with the fewest scruples. Morantz meets a 60-year-old, quote, surly racist with 25,000 subscribers on YouTube who in another era might have been relegated to muttering on his front porch. <laughs> and so I don't know to laugh, to smile, to sort of shake that off and think it's a passing phenomenon yeah. or see it as a direct and sort of mortal threat to democracy. Where, how, where did you fall out? I think it's both. I think it's a grave and mortal threat to democracy that is also laughable and pathetic. And like, but I also, I mean, this is, this is my kind of closest I can come to a sales pitch is the thing you said about, you know, being kept awake at night. It is also weirdly, darkly funny and kind of narratively kind of like, it, it's, it's, it's like, uh, it's scenes. It's not just me yelling about how terrible these things are for 400 pages. It's me showing you how terrible they are in a, in a kind of darkly comic way, which doesn't make the problem less grave, but I think it does help us see the specific ways we've, got, we've gotten into it and therefore some specific ways we can imagine our way out. I, I've found myself in this bizarre position recently of um, finding hope in an analogy to climate change, which is never something I thought I would say, but... In the, in, purely in this sense, in the sense that we all know that climate change is the existential threat of our time, but we also know that we weren't fated to arrive at a place where the earth was warming at a catastrophic rate. It's because of what we did, and therefore it can be undone. Now, it doesn't mean that I have faith in us to undo it, but we know what we would need to do to undo it. So I think we're starting to get there with our informational crisis. I think it's just as naughty a problem, and I think it is almost equally catastrophic because, after all, we can't make progress on things like climate change if we can't talk to each other and elect non-demagogues to higher office and all that <laughs> stuff. So I think, but even though it's just as naughty a problem, I think that means that it's a knot that we tied, which we can therefore untie. It's not just, again, the, the problem with these inevitability metaphors and these arc of history metaphors is they presuppose that this was just where we were always fated to end up, or that if we just tough it out, we'll be fated to end up somewhere nicer and easier and better. 
I don't think fate has anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. One more question for me before I uh, bring Chancellor Chris into the conversation. I was surprised by the extent to which you indicted the Silicon Valley ethos and sort of the tech utopians, as you call them. Yeah, it's getting me in trouble this week. <laughs> this is the West Coast leg of my tour. But yeah. <laughs> Have you been cut off from your Google account? Yeah, no, not quite that. But I went into, I went into one of their private clubs in uh, San Francisco last night, and I got some dirty looks, but... I mean, I think you're among friends here. Yeah, I know. (laughs) But you know, what was your takeaway from them? You talked a little bit about the, you know, your impressions of, you know, these people who are using social media were on the edges, the white supremacists, the, you know, all the rest, the anti-Semites, who you know, who you really explore and spend a lot of time with in the book, but. The people at the other end of the spectrum, what was your conclusion about them? Was it naivete? Was it a blind rush for profits? Drinking their own Kool-Aid? What, what were your conclusions yeah. about that group? It was very much all three of those. Uh, greed, naivete, drinking their own Kool-Aid. Those are the big three. And I think they were all part of the same blend that led us. So, you know, if you, let's say, hypothetically are like a guy who went to Harvard for a couple semesters took a few computer engineering classes and then dropped out, just hypothetically. You, what, what, the kind of lesson you would pick up through cultural osmosis would be arc of history, American exceptionalism, hmm. free speech good, marketplace of ideas, everything will sort of work itself out. If you don't go deeper than that and think about the problems inherent in those ideas, and then let's say, again, hypothetically, you start the biggest forum for public discourse that's ever been known in human history, hypothetically. You're not going to build into it the proper safeguards that are required to make sure that things don't go haywire. So one of the analogies I draw in the book is to a party. If you start a party in a warehouse, right, you're not doing everything that all the people in the warehouse are doing. You're just the host, right? So if somebody starts lighting a couch on fire or something, you're not the person lighting the couch on fire. You might strongly disapprove of the person lighting the couch on fire and feel very concerned and have a deeply you know, furrowed brow on your face. But you set the conditions that made that possible. You did or didn't have a policy at the door of who was going to get carded. You made the lighting choices. You made the music choices. You chose not to have a functional PA system at the party so that if somebody does start lighting a couch on fire, there's some way to quickly alert everyone. Hey, guys, there's a couch on fire. We need to do something about this. You just sort of opened the doors and said, the marketplace will figure it out. Hmm. And if you're wrong, which in the case of our current real timeline, they were wrong, it's not really clear what you can do once it's too late and you have authoritarians installed in 10 major democracies and you know all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, Carol, so I know you've been thinking a lot lately about how sort of the world around the campus and the, this era of political polarization and hate speech and anger has been impacting the university and the student body. So interested in your own impressions of the book and sort of just for Andrew, what sort of questions that came to your mind after reading through it? Well, the question I've been dying to ask you is what what the thing that surprised me about the book is how um, nihilistic and punk and really without convictions, how pathetic um, a lot of these people were, that they were really basically driven by a desire for followers and notoriety rather than um, the, the kind of horrible um, 
convictions that they right. said. And I, I, is that was that your take on it? Because that's certainly what I took from the book. And yeah. that was actually as troubling to me as the as the um, as the 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 virus of of these uh, hate sites yeah. spreading. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, there is so there's a spectrum, right, in the book from from sincere ideologues to as you say, nihilists who don't really seem to have any ideological agenda but seem to have just a sort of pure self-interest. Or even self-interest is maybe generous because it's just they all they want is attention, but it can be negative attention. It doesn't really seem to matter to them. So both of those uh, kind of areas existed within the taxonomy. And I agree it's hard to see which one is worse because, you know say what you will about the tenets of national socialism, dude, at least it's an ethos. Like you, you, some, you know, people, you can, you can work with an ideology. It's hard to know how to work with a nihilist. But um, I think, again, and, you know, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves into the John Stuart Mill stuff, but, you know, I think this is one of the things that Mill didn't quite anticipate, that there could be people who are not trying to sharpen your argument or counter your argument with a better argument, but who really are not interested in arguments at all and who aren't interested in logic at all? Yeah, well, what's interesting to me about Mill, because I've been thinking a lot about the marketplace of ideas recently and why that doesn't work currently, that metaphor. And I think to think of the marketplace of ideas, there has to be a marketplace. Mm -hmm. There has to be a, a, a single place that all ideas come to. And that's simply not true of the world on the internet, that there are these self-contained communities. And that's the question that I always ask myself. Okay, I know these crazy folks are out there, but it doesn't impinge on my lived world. Right, right, right. And that's that's true. That's a product of filter bubbles and siloing and echo chambers and all that. It's also, you know, we're aware of the echo chamber effect, but it happens in a much more micro way. I mean, each person's feed is literally algorithmically personalized such that, you know, we have these broad echo chambers, you know, the sort of Fox News and MSNBC thing, but Fox News and MSNBC are very, very dully targeted. They're not, they're like macro targeted. When we talk about micro targeting, it's based on thousands of daily inputs that the, each user is giving the system. So it's even more specific and more pernicious than echo chambers. So yeah, I, um, I definitely agree that it's hard. You know, so I, I spent time with people who were sort of as the book goes on, especially post-Charlottesville, because it's kind of chronological. Yeah. Yeah. Post-Charlottesville, you get some really sincere ideologues and people who mm-hmm. are just very red-pilled on the JQ, as they say. Um, red pill is a metaphor for the Matrix when you have taken, you know, it's something you see in Alice in Wonderland. It's something you see in Plato's Cave. It's this allegory that you have taken this pill that shows you the truth but the the truth that they are seeing is it can be you know sort of hardcore misogyny it can be um any number of it, it can be anything but a lot of the people that i was talking to post charlottesville their red pill experience was realizing how jews are perniciously controlling the world and all this stuff that i was like this is so old-fashioned like you guys are really not innovating in your prejudice very much like this is uh i was just i was surprised when i went into it i did not expect it to be i did not expect to be dealing with the really old just you know protocols of the elders of zion stuff essentially and i was surprised at the degree to which i mean one question that people asked me uh while i was doing it is like how does it feel particularly 
as a white guy to be embedded in these worlds. And what I eventually started saying was a lot of them, these people don't think I'm white. Because you're Jewish? Yeah. yeah. They, 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 they think of me as, I mean, the white, white is the, the people they want to align themselves with to create a white ethnostate. That is manifestly not me. So let me ask you a question. Is there an analog on the other side of the political spectrum? Was it, is there something inherent to all of this that aligned these ideologies, white supremacy, white nationalism, anti-Semitism, racism, misogyny, that these are the groups that are taking advantage of all that the Internet offers in terms of access to each other and creating networks and destroying norms? Or is there another side that you elected not to look at? Uh, yeah, I don't think there's really an analogous mirror image on the left. I think there are uh, jerks on the left and people who, you know, issue violent threats on the left. There's certainly misogyny and racism on the left. But I don't think it's the same. I mean, the, the way I think of it is this country was built on, in addition to lots of lofty ideals, it was built on a pretty solid foundation of white supremacy. And that has always been used by what has been called the political right or the political reactionaries or whatever. I mean, in the aftermath of the Civil War, in the run-up to the Civil War, it, there's always been this kind of valence to it, um, which is not to say that there can't be lovely people on the right who are really nice and get along and play Little League with, with people on, of all races. But I, I, don't, I, and I, I don't mean to be glib about it. I don't think that that means that if you are a registered Republican, that means that you're a bad person or a racist or something. But... The, the, the underlying foundational structure of this country has always kind of been what it's been, and it's always taken on a certain political valence. The names of the parties have flipped and all that stuff, and, you know, we can... There's all kinds of specious sort of Dinesh D'Souza arguments about how Democrats are the real racists and all this stuff, but the fact is, like, it's always kind of had one valence. Now, uh, I definitely think there is a book to be written about you know, the far left. And, but it wouldn't be this kind of book. It wouldn't just be hmm. like all the, the, the proper nouns are flipped and you get the same right. experience. Right. Um, and I want to bring you in at this point because one of the things, you know, that I took away as a former journalist was just what a price we've paid for the collapse of the Fifth Estate or journalistic hmm. norms hmm. And, in so many areas. And I, I'll read you the, you know, I'll read you this quote um, from 2011 that's in the book and, and you might guess who it's from. After considerable deliberation and reflection, I have decided not to pursue the presidency. However, I will not shy away from expressing the opinions that so many of you share, yet don't have a medium through which to articulate. That was Donald Trump in 2011. Um, And the ideas that he wanted to express and articulate were Barack Obama was born in Kenya. I mean, specifically, that was the idea on which he ran. In 2011, one could argue that the gatekeepers were at least maybe more in place or there were more of them. And part of what helped facilitate his rise in his election was this, it's almost, I mean, the premonition that he had or sort of as, and so I'm wondering what your take was on the book. Well, I, 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 look, I I admired the book a lot. And you, I have to say, Andrew, you made it look easy (laughs) because you are a very good writer and a very imaginative writer. It's easy to read the book without fully understanding and appreciating how much reporting went into it. And, and so my hat is off to you. Um, I found the book disturbing, uh, in, in, both in the ways you intended and maybe in some of the ways you didn't intend, because I'm not sure that you weren't succumbing to a certain amount of self 
presentation and hype coming from the people you were talking about. They claimed an awful lot of impact. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure I see that. I think that Donald Trump owed a lot more to Fox News than he did to the entirety of the, of, of the people, that, the population that you sampled. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't think the gatekeeper, the indispensability of gatekeepers is a thing entirely of the past. I mean, to me, I'm puzzled. The question I have is, which is more durable? The existence of this vicious, murderous right wing that's out there propagating discredited doctrines and training in the, in the uh, forests of Michigan, is, is that more durable? Is it the belief on the left that that right wing exists? Is that, is that, is that fiction, which we've carried with us, and you, to your credit, quote, David Duke being called on to Sally Jesse Raphael and these other daytime talk shows in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And David Duke was never, never made any, never made any, uh, never dissembled as far as his racism and his, the horribleness of his politics. So um, I guess what I'm curious about and what I, I challenge you with, I suppose, mm-hmm. is whether you captured a moment or the moment. And when I look at the, the way the book ends with this kind of dissolution of some of the most interesting and colorful and eloquent people that you got, I think, friends with, you know, because they were kind of interesting people, and they were fun to hang out with, and they were very, very uh, 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 enchanting in their own way, entrancing perhaps, um, they seem to be falling apart. That moment of social presence and social efficacy seemed to have basically climaxed with the Trump election, for which they really had very little to do, in my view. I don't think they got Donald Trump elected. I th- these, and, and to your credit again, you presented, as Carol noted, there's a punk element of flamboyant people who dressed funny and made, made up code as they went along and had no consistent or coherent political line at all. And half of them were Jewish. Uh, and, and you had that kind of uh, uh, population of people and alongside the ones with the swastikas on their eyelids and all the rest of it who were really scary. So you had this, what you really had is in response to the amazing capabilities that the Internet had put in everybody's pockets. You had this cultural upheaval, which took many, many forms, not exclusively or not even primarily political forms. They had to do with contesting the form of culture, contesting cultural values, contesting uh, just aesthetics. There were a great many things that were being contested at the same time, and it would be difficult to assign to them a a primacy of political now, you, I'll stop in a moment, but I would like you also at some point to talk about that Breitbart quote, which you quoted several times, which was so interesting. The quote was, politics is downstream from culture. Is that effectively what it is? And I thought about that. I said, wow. You know, and I really did. It really rocked me back. And I started thinking about it. I said, wait a minute. Is it really? Are the people who vote really voting pursuant to a cultural predilection, or are they voting because public policy has failed them, and that promised things the government was supposed to do they haven't delivered on? Are they not reacting to a much more traditional notion of political gain and political advantage than they are simply knee-jerking a response to a cultural predilection that they may or may not have? So yeah. anyway, that's a anyway, lot to so, chew on. Yeah, no, I wish I had written all the things down because there's about 12 <laughs> things I want to respond to. So um, go for it. 
I mean, so let's try to take them one by one. So um, politics is downstream from culture. Um, as I note in the book, like all maxims, it's reductive. It also flows in the other direction. But um, I, I think that we ignore the influence of culture on our politics at our peril. I think we ignore the power of what you call militias in the woods in Michigan at our peril. Obviously, I didn't write about any militias in the woods in Michigan. I wrote about real people with real influence. And I think to your core uh, concern about that these are just fringe people that didn't have any real influence and didn't get Trump elected, um, I don't see that as realistic. And I really think that is a dangerous um, thing for us to ignore. That so, so just to interrupt you. Yeah. So you think culture explains why districts that went in two consecutive elections, Barack Obama, then voted for Donald Trump. Did they have a cultural transformation in the meantime? Yes. Um, not exclusively, but definitely. I mean, it, you seem to be presupposing that people are rational actors with perfect information and perfect, I mean, or that, you know, it, it, I, I think culture, we need to understand culture broadly. We can understand culture narrowly, meaning the person who is the best talker and the smoothest politician wins every time, which is one of the reasons why I won so many bets, because I just have never thought that policy was so exclusively meaningful to people that they wouldn't just bet, vote for the taller person or the person they'd rather have a beer with or the person who they've seen on TV more. I think that perfectly explains why people would vote for Barack Obama and then Donald Trump, because they're the most charismatic politicians in the race. Um, I also think that culture, you know, culture doesn't just mean um, what music you like and what food you like. And I mean, it means uh, something much deeper than that. And one of the kind of underlying preoccupations in the book is with this whole thing that Richard Rorty talks about, about cultural vocabularies. Um, sort of, so just to catch people up, Richard Rorty is this um, great, uh, great philosopher of the 20th century. He unfortunately did teach at Stanford for a while, so I don't know if I'm allowed to bring him up here, but <laughs> yeah. he, uh, he has this whole notion of vocabularies not as sort of superficial um, modes of speaking or, or etiquette, but of really deep constitutive ways of thinking. The sort of maxim that I attribute to him is to change how we talk is to change who we are. So I think that what we underestimate is by thinking of people like David Duke and people like militias and people with swastikas on their eyelids as just sort of so irreducibly fringe that it's almost embarrassing to bring them up. Um, now, of course, they're embarrassing, and of course, they're fringe, and of course, they're lunatics. The problem is that um, it's not, all these things are interrelated. The, 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 you know, whether you use the downstream metaphor, whether you use the webbing metaphor that a pragmatist philosopher wants you to use, it's not, it's not so bifurcated and calcified that we can say, well, you know, there's mainstream politics and there's fringe politics, and the one has nothing to do with the other. We have always lived in a, in a world where these things have been interpenetrated, and we now especially live in that world because of social media. I, I just I cannot stress enough, you bring up Fox News, of course Fox News is monumentally important. That's why one of the things that makes these people so powerful and so dangerous is their, precisely their ability to dictate what is going to be on Fox News that night. Because the, as I was saying before, the fact that these things are all interwebbed in a media matrix. The fact that there is constantly this metaphor of connection, the fact that we talk about the Overton window, the, 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 the metaphor of the Overton window is a metaphor of connection. Everything... Stop for a sec. So what is the Overton window? Just explain The, the Overton window is a concept from sort of um, the political science of the 90s that sort of says 
there's a window of what's acceptable, and the window can shift. So um, the, 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 the example that people like to bring up is the example of same-sex marriage, because that's a nice, happy, positive example. It shifted in the right direction. But again, like, I think what we ignore at our peril is that it can also shift in the wrong direction. And like, I'm very, very resistant to kind of you know, complacent inevitability metaphors that say, the fringe is always going to be there. There will always be a paranoid style in American politics. All we have to do is keep moving forward. I agree with you that we have to deliver policy gains for people in ways that affect their lives on the ground. And I agree with you that a lot of the disaffection that led to Trump had to do with trade policy and jobs and all the rest of it. I don't mean to be making an analysis that seems to imply that one matters and the other one doesn't, or that they're not also interrelated, or that racism and economic anxiety don't compound each other and all that stuff. I just think that there's a real danger in slipping into all of one or none of the other. In other words, that because people have real tangible economic grievances, they aren't also susceptible to really scary open racism or really scary closed to dog whistle racism. And I think what we do when we relegate people like David Duke to the fringes is we forget that he came very, very close to winning both a congressional election and a gubernatorial election. Very close. And not in 1952, in 1990. So it, it, it's just, I, I don't have any particular predilection for wanting to heighten. By the way, they're not my friends. I should make that very clear. <laughs> I, I don't have any appetite to give them more attention than they, than they deserve or to make them seem dark and sexy and nefarious anti-heroes. I, have, I, I did not want to be writing this book at all. I didn't want to be around them. I didn't find them dangerous and sexy and cool. I didn't want to heighten their... I, I, I felt, as I make clear in the book, very ethically torn about whether to give them any oxygen at all. The reason I ended up thinking that I had to is precisely because of social media, because the things that give... Donald Trump, the ability to win in 2016, where he couldn't have won in 2012 or 2000 or 1988, is precisely this idea that fringe things can keep percolating and keep bubbling up on their own through these ungoverned algorithms in ways that they can't, now in the more traditional media. Which brings me to your point about the gatekeepers and whether they have fully gone away. And I guess I... I... I don't think they've fully gone away. I think their power has been diminished. But, you know, you bring up the example of Fox News. There are human beings there who could be making better decisions. And, and so why are they not, right? Part of it is greed. Part of it is, you know, apparently Rupert Murdoch just will never die and he just will never pass on control to the next generation. But part of it, and I haven't been keeping up with succession, so I don't know what happens next at Fox News, but part of it is that he doesn't... Um, that, that, that Donald Trump ate the Republican Party from the inside. So that, that is yet another example of how these things are all interrelated. One would have thought, based on any analysis of Fox News from the Roger Ailes era up to June of 2015, that Fox News would have been nothing but an impediment to the rise of Donald Trump. And in fact, they were at the beginning. They threw Megyn Kelly in front of that train, and she got run over by the train. And Donald Trump steamrolled them. Now, why was he able to do that? In large part, it was because of disaffection of people who have been left behind by NAFTA in Michigan, but in large part it was because of these toxic memes on social media. I, 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 I really I don't think that we can write those out of the narrative just because they, they are really gross and make us uncomfortable. So do you think this is like Pandora's box? 
that, you know, and now there's no putting it back. There's no way of creating the guardrails that were um, not put up in the first place. Do you think if um, in 2020 a, a candidate gets elected who is, um, uh, I guess it would have to be a Democrat because there isn't going to be a Republican that's going to run except for Trump. Do you, do you think that that's going to change our politics and change our language without the authorizer of Trump to this kind of world? I guess the, you could call it the authorizer and the creation of this, of this far-right world. Definitely. I think it will change a lot. And I think that the good news about the Rodian notion of cultural vocabularies is that much like Overton Windows, they can morph and shift in any direction. And so I think Fox News could go back to being the Fox News that we knew, which is another thing that we can add to the list of things that we never thought we would be nostalgic for. <laughs> um, you know, I think, that, I think that these things can go back to being the way they were. I don't think that the business model of traditional media, of traditional journalism is going to get fixed. So I think that the coarseness and violence uh, and just crassness of the current vocabulary, the frequency of the lying. I think all those things can correct, but I do think there are some bells that can't be unrung. And one of them is just that um, traditional journalism just doesn't really have a way to pay for itself in the way it did 10 years ago. But um, uh, not exclusively, there are still newspapers in the world, but there are just many fewer of them. But I do think that um, the vocabulary can shift in any number of directions. It's just that it's much easier to, as I said, play on negative emotions than positive ones. So I'm, I'm wondering, and Ed comes from the world of journalism, now in the world of the, the academy, and Chancellor Christ, obviously, in higher education, and two of the institutions that get called out here, that get indicted, are universities and sort of the journalistic institution. To what degree was that sort of inevitable, or do you think there were failures along the way where these institutions left Maine huge swaths of America to the side didn't really talk to them, didn't really address their needs. Um, is that something that we need to take on board here? Do we need to start looking at home in terms of what got this started? Yeah, so I think that's, it's really interesting. So I think, yes, but I, I'm ambivalent about how that should be done. In other words, so you know, you remember right after the election, there was this kind of weird apology letter that uh, Dean Bacay sent out at the New York Times that kind oh, right. of, this isn't from the book, but it's just, I'm just making me think of it. So there was this thing after the election where the executive editor of the New York Times sent out this letter that was one of the more bizarre documents I've ever read where he said, we're really sorry because our polling seemed to indicate this result and it was wrong. And we're also sorry that we didn't cover Trump voters more, but we did cover them a lot. And you should really keep subscribing to us because we did a really great job in our coverage. <laughs> but we're really sorry that we didn't do a better job in our coverage. It just sort of said everything at once. And I, the reason I'm picking on him, I think he's a good newspaper editor, but the reason I'm picking on him is that I think that's a sign of how all these things kind of get conflated and mushed together in our brains. The polling was wrong. Therefore, the coverage was wrong. Therefore, but we need more coverage. But we need to do it better. But we, I, I just, I think we haven't, I, I mean... I don't think we've actually settled on what the right answer is, and I think partly because that's because there are these inherent tensions. One of the ones I do point to in the book is the tension between uh, objectivity and telling the truth, right? We tend to think that those are generally going to be the same thing, but it turns out that when you're covering a bigot, a liar, a swarm of trolls, an open racist, 
and again, Ed, to your point, you know, you might uh, think that all those things are, are fringe and not worth covering, but they also all describe the uh, occupant of the White House. D- don't put so, words in my mouth. No. I certainly would never suggest they're not worth covering. I'm talking about the construction you put on and the importance right, that you're right, imbuing right. them with, which I think is a little bit, yeah. uh, it requires a, a stronger argument than you've mustered in the book. Right. And I don't know where, I, I, it's, certainly there's been enough study done of the 2016 election to enable us to draw some conclusions about the effect of social media on the voters. And I have not seen the data to support the contention that they were a, a major enabling force for the Trump ascendancy. And, and I, I, I'm questioning that. I'm, I'm yeah, not yeah, saying yeah. They're, they're a civic boon, uh, and I certainly think that the cultural element of that is, is worth noting. Uh, but, you know, Trump did not... <laughs> did not take over the Republican Party unaided. The Republican Party has been, has been eating itself for the last 40 years, and much of the political uh, tailwind that he was able to benefit from was generated by many others. Um, and yeah. certainly fringe politics has been part of the political system. I'm thinking of the Carrie, uh, the Carrie Bush uh, campaign in 2004. Where did Swift Boats come from? And this was another kind of right-wing fantasy that managed to get a tremendous amount of support, managed to discredit yeah. the Carrie candidacy, and had nothing, nothing to do with, with uh, yeah, social yeah, yeah. media. Well, so let, just to let's put a button on this, and then we'll do the, the objectivity versus telling the truth thing, because I think that's important. I guess what I would say is, look, this isn't a book. This isn't a political science book. It's not a book that's marshalling all the available data. What I will say is... First of all, it's kind of easy to say that any of these things could have swung the election because it was such a close election, right? If Hillary Clinton had bothered to campaign in Wisconsin, it could have swung the election. So that, so it's not, it, it's not to say that um, there is any number of factors could have been decisive. I think it is beyond question that social media was one of those decisive factors. And one of the reasons that I think that is that I don't think the questionnaires and polls of asking people where do you get your information are any kind of reliable indicator. Uh, I, obviously, people get their information from TV, and obviously it, it's correlated with age. But again, I, I, I just I think part of the problem with those questionnaires is that they presuppose that these things can be ranked in some kind of discrete way that people are even conscious of. And some of the some of the traditional political science that I'm very critical of in the book is this you know the whole um, party decides kind of. A notion that there's a kind of like rank choice system where people go, well, my policy preferences are this, and I get my information from this one source, and you know, on Tuesdays I get my information from this source. I just I don't think that's actually meaningful. I think if you, I I I think that people form impressions in ways that they're not entirely conscious of. I don't think it's um, paternalistic or or whatever to to say that. I think it's just a reality of human psychology. I think people make choices. I mean, people were lying to pollsters about who they were going to vote for up until polling day. I just no, don't think sure. it's... Sure. Listen, you're not going to find a lot of defense for yeah. traditional political science here. But if you were to find out that the overwhelming majority of people that are being claimed as followers of one of, your, one of the people you interviewed didn't vote at all mm-hmm. and have no interest in voting, mm-hmm. it certainly is... It wouldn't affect my analysis at all because they, what they do is they manipulate media. Okay, maybe. But we, you're operating within a self-enclosed bubble and you're... you're you know, listening to the echoes off of the inside of that bubble. What I'm saying is that we're not making the leap and finding real efficacy and really turning the political conversation or hijacking the American conversation, as your book says, 
that I'm, I'm not. You've left me wanting to believe, but I'm not quite there. Well, I can. I can certainly talk. see. I can certainly see certain areas of policy. Immigration, for example, seems to be very susceptible to the influence from the people you're talking about. Yeah. Maybe guns as well. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, let's all go home and watch the most popular primetime host on cable news and see if he hasn't been influenced by fringe politics. Talk about. Tucker? Yes. Yes. And, um, you know, and I would also, I just want to cite of his bow tie. He did. Of, I want to cite a piece of That's data. That one of the most disturbing things that really kept me up screaming at night was there was a piece of data and the piece of something you talked about that they did an analysis of the, of the 2012 election. Mm-hmm. And they found that if Mitt Romney had won 3% more of the white vote, um, he would have won in a landslide. And you seem to be suggesting, therefore, that the entire purpose of the Republican Party was to find that 3%. Um, Not the purpose of the Republican Party. No, the purpose of the Trump campaign. The purpose of the Trump campaign. Right. Absolutely. So it seems we're talking about very relatively small numbers of people you needed to bring along. Right. I think you actually said the data that in the book that said, and it would have been a landslide even if he had not received a single vote single. for... From an African American or person of color, right? And so uh, that's a stunning number, right? And it suggests how much power do you need to have? Find that three percent, because what? Correct me if I'm wrong. It seems that it what also surprised me in the book: a lot of the people you talked to were as disaffected from the Republican Party as they were from the Democratic Party, right? Right, which also explains the Obama Trump voter and all that stuff. I, Could, yeah, hold on. Ed, let him just finish. Ed, just, okay. just to finish the comment. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, this this is all sort of going back to the point of. The, the matrix and the, I think it's, it, we're going to get it wrong if we don't think about these things as being all interpenetrated and interrelated. I think if we think of, you know, um, the, the, you know, Rust Belt Reagan Republican vote as Reagan Democrat vote as being one kind of vote and the fringe, you know, uh, sympathetic to David Duke vote as being another kind of vote, I think we're just going to be misguided. My point in bringing up the, the past episodes of David Duke being on Sally, Jesse, Raphael, and all that stuff is that the way these people have influence is not by getting 50% of Americans to say, I love David Duke and wearing his face on a T-shirt. It's by surreptitiously, slowly, and powerfully influencing the national discourse and moving it in the wrong direction. Yeah. And that is what they were able to do to make Trump electable. So, so let me ask you, you brought up I think, a, a, very, a, a very good question a point here about the traditional way that journalists, journalism covers the char- characters that you're reporting on. And, and you say, and this is something we talk about a lot, mm-hmm. and we, nobody has a very good solution for it. And I'm very curious to know what yours is. Mm-hmm. Because you say here, um, if newspapers, how style didn't allow its reporters to say, uh, at least by implication, uh, that, you know, that, I'm sorry, I've read this wrong. Um, Basically, pointing out that uh, certain individuals are racist and and and, um, and lunatics and on all the rest, and if you're reporting on them without pointing out to the reader the character right. and the flaws and 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 what's so toxic about them, then you're doing your readers a disservice. Right, right. It's just I really right. bungled the question. No, no, I guess. But you understand the setup. Yeah. We do operate. We do submit to certain disciplines in the way we recite, the way we gather and recite facts. We are bridling under those restrictions right now. The entire establishment press, mainstream press, is appalled by the uses to which they've been put thanks to the own, their, their own self-imposed disciplines. Right. So the question is, what would you do if you're editor of the New York Times 
and, and you made some good comments about Dean. So how, what would you be instructing your reporters to do? How would you yeah. want them to report differently? No, it's a good question, and I, and I don't have a good answer. I, I mean, I don't have a um, simple answer. I think the reason I bring up those, and this is exactly where I was going to go with the objectivity on one hand and truth on the other, that's exactly the bind, right? Uh, it, it, when it comes to uh, Gamergate or um, you know some story about a troll army, uh, there it's traditional reporters are in a bind, and I feel this sometimes at the New Yorker too. There's there's obviously a house style, and there's things that you're not exactly allowed to say. I, I kind of bemoan the demise of Gawker in the book because there are certain things where Gawker could just say, "Army of." troll shitheads does shithead thing, that you're not going to get that headline in the New York Times. So, um, but it's more honest. It's just less objective. So I think the first step is to recognize that we can have fundamental tensions that are not necessarily resolvable. I think that tension between being even-handed and objective and on the one hand and telling the truth on the other, sometimes they're just directly at odds with each other and you just have to make a choice. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the way to resolve it is to not run the story. Sometimes the way to resolve it is to get someone else to run the story, you know, if it's someone who knows the area better or is more directly affected by it. Sometimes the answer is to run the story but make allowances to provide more context. You know, sometimes it's as simple as the mechanical layout of a page. You know, one of the headlines the Times got in trouble for recently, you know, Trump urges unity. Uh, Do you remember this? It was like... uh, his speech was not about urging unity, right? But he said the word unity in the speech. So it was technically accurate, but it was not really the more salient truth. And their ultimate excuse for that was, we just, the page wasn't big enough. So make a bigger page, right? There there are some things where, um, and I don't expect people to be perfect. I know that, you know, and and I was was really trying hard in the book not to be victim-blamey and to uh, not lay the problems of America at the feet of the New York Times. I think that's, a, that's everyone's favorite pastime on Twitter is to blame everything on the New York Times, and I think it's <laughs> woefully short-sighted. I think they're one of the few functional institutions in the country. So, uh, but, I, but I do think that they're imperfect, and, and I think it's one thing if it's a sort of isolated mistake, right? Something was overlooked, something, the headline wasn't big enough, whatever, it's a daily thing, mistakes get made. But if there's a fundamental tension at work between even-handedness and truth, let's say, that has to be ironed out at a deeper level. That can't just we can't just keep skating by and not expecting pitfalls to keep arising from that. Yeah, yeah although I do find the New York Times much more argumentative mm-hmm. and um, much more point of view in its news articles than it used to be. Mm-hmm. So I think even yeah. though it may, I mean, still obviously the dilemma is there. It seems to me it's moving in the direction that you are yeah. suggesting. Yeah, and I don't moving. know that there. Uh, right, and I don't know that it should be necessarily I think largely look this is why I ended up putting this architecture of this cultural vocabulary and kind of this undercurrent of philosophy throughout the book it's God knows it's not because my book editor asked me to put in more academic philosophy into the book it was because I do think that if we think of these things without that look it's it we're in a moment of cultural turmoil and it's hard to know which way that militates in every case. And I think the best way to think about it is to think of it as, I mean, Rorty makes an analogy to paradigm shifts and paradigm shifts in the true Thomas Kuhn philosophy of science sense. When you're in between paradigms, the technical term for that period is crisis. So we're in a period of crisis. It's not a coincidence then that our papers of record are, you know, 
sort of institutions that we look for for stability are going to be unstable. And that's deeply unnerving, but I think it's kind of unavoidable. And I don't always know which way they should turn. I think one nice thing they could do is not be so reactive on a day-to-day basis um, and kind of form their reactions based on the most recent mistake and overcorrect for that mistake and have, you know, pendulum swinging in every direction. Um, but yeah, I don't, um, I think, I think Trump is a, a like a problem f- out of hell for them because they don't know what do you, what do you, what do you do? Just call him a different epithet every day. I mean, I don't know. I, well, I mean, one thing you might do is not make him the center of public life. Mm-hmm. They have managed to feed his celebrity till you know. You look at the Washington Post, which is a grieving, you know, tremendously anti-Trump organization. You, you you pick up their their website, and their ten out of fifteen headlines yeah, are Trump. That's right. They have made him the unique focus of public life. And until you read something like Michael Lewis's book about the dismantlement of the federal bureaucracy, you're unaware of just how thoroughly. Trump's people have have taken over, mm-hmm. and with what and with what consequences? And now Trump is the focus. And I wonder now we're facing a situation where where where, politi- where culture is going to be downstream from politics, and the principal breakpoint and the fault line in American society is going to be with him or against him. Yeah. So I want to change the change gears slightly, more than slightly actually, and move into the area of free speech because while it isn't addressed really explicitly in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, Andrew, not that I think it was last Sunday, he wrote an op-ed piece that got a lot of attention in the New York Times. Um, clearly, there's a, there's a bit in the book where you're talking about you know, some of the Silicon Valley mavens, the, uh, the utopians, the technical utopians. Yeah. And you write, when social media tools were used to incite hatred, the disruptors, and those are the Sil- Silicon Valley lords, usually responded by saying something vague about free speech. And here you are a few years later in the op-ed, and you say sticks and stones and assault rifles could hurt us, but the Internet was surely only a force for progress. No one believes that anymore. I no longer have any doubt that the brutality that germinates on the Internet can leap into the world of flesh and blood. The question is where this leaves us. Noxious speech is causing tangible harm. And that doesn't sound like the uh, Andrew Morantz who was here on campus a couple of years ago. Um, in terms of how you see free speech, and it seems like you're moving towards this position, and it's, it's actually represented by two folks here at, at, at Berkeley, our law school dean, who doesn't know who could possibly have the power and the wisdom to decide what is hate speech, and, and Professor John Powell, who really wants us to understand that, yes, we recognize in many legal and cultural realms that speech does cause harm, but you seem to be moving down that road to like we have to find a way to control it. Yeah, so I don't see a contradiction between where I was then and where I am now. I, uh, I, you know, I think, so I was pretty careful in that piece to make clear that I am not advocating for government true. restrictions That's on true. speech. And when I was here covering the um, Milo Circus, um, the underlying premise was... This is a public university, therefore the First Amendment applies, therefore he has to be able to speak. And the whole conversation was about time, place, and manner restrictions on that speech to the extent that they would be levied. So I'm still there. I still think that if somebody was invited to speak at a First Amendment abiding institution, the current interpretation of U.S. Supreme Court law would dictate that they have to be allowed to speak. What I'm questioning is, A, whether that should be the interpretation of First Amendment law for time immemorial or whether we can 
change our interpretations of laws just like we've always changed our interpretations of laws. And B, what I'm questioning is absolutism as an excuse for paralysis. So Hmm. it's one thing to say that the Second Amendment exists and therefore people have a right to bear arms even though they're not in a well-regulated militia. It's another thing to say every person has a right to every gun without restriction, with no safes and with babies in the house. And that's a different thing. And that has to do with the way we interpret the text of the Constitution. Now, there are also all kinds of other things that have nothing to do with the First Amendment because private companies are not bound by the First Amendment. And there's, you know, all kinds of civic action that we can take that would be carrots and not sticks and would be positive rather than negative liberty. So I don't, um, I'm not advocating for prior restraint. I'm not advocating for throwing people in jail for being political dissidents. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that because those facts exist, it doesn't mean that we can't think harder about all the other stuff. Yeah, but it seems to me it's profoundly different. This is one of the things that is powerful about your book, to think about the internet as a place for free speech versus thinking about a room. Mm -hmm. Like what's protected on the Berkeley campus is any student group can invite um, if they have a legitimate reason that, that's related to their the identity of their group, to come speak in a room like this. It's profoundly different, no matter how awful the garbage is that they say, for somebody to be talking to a room of, I don't know, 75 people um, versus being, uh, uh, you know, alive on the Internet to any community that can form itself in relationship to that speech. So it seems to me the two issues are somewhat different and... and just finished reading a really, really interesting uh, book um, uh, by Stanley Fish that's about to be published um, uh, that is about free speech. And um, he argues that free speech is always political, that it's not some you know, principle that exists in some you know, pure universe, uh, um, but that it always takes meaning from a political context and that... Free speech itself is um, you're, you're, you're only guaranteed the right to not have the government interfere with free speech. There are all kinds of ways in which free speech is you know, limited in, in a public university. I mean, it's, that's what time, place, and manner is, that um, uh, you, you know, behavior in classrooms, behavior in lecture halls, behavior in faculty meetings is highly constrained by the context. So did the book, Carol, make you think we need to be more assertive or put a a heavier finger sort of on the scales when it comes to how we comment or call out speech, this sort of speech that Andrew explored in his book, the the white supremacy? Have we been too lax and too open? Do we need to be more restrictive, or do you think that those ideals still serve the institution well here? Well, I think those ideals serve the institution well. I I mean, I... I was just involved in discussions with some uh, discussion with some students um, the other day who wanted me to pronounce on any number of issues, and I just don't think that that really serves the kind of freedom of inquiry to which the university is is devoted. It's not that I don't think other people should do it; it's just that I don't think institutions should necessarily mm-hmm. do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree that the I, sounds like this Stanley Fish book is up my alley because it it. Uh, I agree that the context and the specific framework of any institutional intervention matter a great deal, and that. But I, the main thing I, I want us to avoid, and it sounds like this fish argument also wants to avoid, is the notion that because we love and cherish and protect the First Amendment, therefore we must be um, non-interventionist whenever it comes yeah. to any yeah. form of speech we don't like. Yeah. 
So I, I want to ask each of you in turn, sort of having read the book, you wrote the book, obviously. I've um, read it also. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we do? Um, be, to be a little prescriptive, you know, to take the, based on your findings and the experience you had over the last three years, yeah. what do we do to salvage democracy? What do we do to salvage truth? What do we do to salvage discourse that we can actually tolerate? Um, yeah, I think that I was just thinking I've been rejecting a number of jokes, but um, I think uh, uh, I think, I think uh, you know, since we're on the topic of free speech and not being so reflexively non-interventionist about it, I think that, and again, this has nothing to do with the First Amendment really, but I think that the companies that built the internet, now that they have been forced to acknowledge that moving fast and breaking things is not the only thing that they can do and that they can actually take some responsibility there are a lot of things they can do uh, to, and 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 I I want to be clear that when often the discussion is about should they kick off this or that person or should they mute this or that form of speech, I think that's way too many steps down the causal chain. I think the biggest changes could come from just revamping the architecture of the algorithms themselves. Uh, we're going to hear a big speech from Mark Zuckerberg tomorrow about what he's going to do about hate speech on Facebook, and my. Strong suspicion is that it's going to be about fiddling around at the margins and not about you know changing the way that Facebook fundamentally makes its money. But I think that that is what really needs to happen. Yeah. Carol, do you have I, any? I completely agree. <laughs> 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 I, I, I think that um, that there have to be. I mean, it's hard to put guardrails up when there haven't been them there. But I think that there that it, social media platforms can do much more to make it harder for um, these groups and this kind of hate speech to um, really flourish on the Internet. Yeah, and Ed, I know you're dubious about the dangers. You ask big questions. What do we do? (laughs) Where do you start? Um, No, I agree with everything that's been said here, and I do think the... uh, there needs to be a very uh, a serious and um, uh, determined um, attempt to either dismantle or to wrest control over the kind of world of discourse that's now being wielded by the platforms. And, and this came out of nowhere. I mean, nobody was expecting this. Nobody imagined the scale and the thoroughness uh, and the self-reinforcing mm. quality of it. It does not seem to have any internal correctives to it. Um, and I think that requires some pretty, pretty audacious public policy response. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think we have a larger problem of our political culture has really become unhinged. Mm-hmm. And this was predated the Internet. I, I think that it certainly constrains what my people do, the people in, in media, because you can't be blowing the whistle on wrongdoing if nobody's listening. And there is no response. The newspapers, news organizations can break stories, but if there are no hearings the next day, then you have a... And so we have a real destruction of the expectation of agency on the part of the public. The public doesn't expect to be able to get anything done. And, and so I think we're, we're in a, a major pickle. Uh, and I think that part of it is the things, although I was criticizing some of the cl- broader claims mm-hmm. that you make on behalf of the people you interviewed, obviously it's a source of... It's a problem. Yep. Um, so... You know, it's a fight. I think we need to understand this is a long fight. It's going to be a difficult fight. We're coming up against the wealthiest and most entrenched forces in the world. Good point. So I'm going to go to a few questions from the audience now, and there's some good ones here. Just a quick review. First, Andrew, what are your conclusions about the role of universities in all this? 
Uh, I'm very pro-university. <laughs> Thank you. I actually did. Uh, that, that we was, have your vote. That, Excellent. That was a big takeaway from my time here, actually. Really? Just a, yeah, just uh, that there are, you know, even when, you know, universities are embattled or going through, you know, a challenge, they are just much, good ones are much more functional as institutions than most institutions in our mm-hmm. country right now. And they have a mission, which is rare for most. I mean, another, another fundamental um, culture uh, clash that we're seeing between the giant Borg social platforms and the more traditional news media is that traditional news media institutions, at least good ones, are mission-driven institutions, mm-hmm. as are universities. And uh, social media mm-hmm. companies pretend to be, but I'm skeptical of that. Yeah. Um, next, did Trump have to win for these techno hate mongers to have impact? That was one of my questions. Yeah, there's a chicken did and egg thing, right? Yeah. Did they help him win, and then did he help them maintain? Yeah. And as Ed points out, a lot of the individuals in the book have a kind of rise and fall narrative, like a lot of, you know, Milo being one of them, they kind of have this, like, nice tailwind, and then they just kind of crash and burn. And um, so I don't think Trump helped the individuals in the book. I think a lot of the individuals in the book hurt themselves by driving themselves into irrelevance, but I worry that they were kind of the front line mm. that had to die off to get the back lines into the promised land. Great. Next. Um, as someone who does not participate in social media, why do so many people fall for fake narratives and conspiracy theories? Uh-huh. Um, well, you're safe, whoever wrote this. But, um, <laughs> you're, no, I actually don't think I – well, I was doing a, I was doing a thing with um, – Jaron Lanier, Lanier last night, and he he was interviewing me about the book, and he has this thing about why everybody should delete their social media accounts. I sort of told him I'm a little skeptical of that because I think that it's the danger is that once you say, oh, well, I'm insulated because I deleted my Facebook account, you, you sort of discount the extent to which you still live in the world that Facebook created. So it's like you might not drive a car, but you still have to deal with pollution. Yeah, I think people just love stories of agency, and yeah. um, and they love narratives. That's how we structure the world. Yeah. And if you can, a, a good story doesn't have to be true. That's what all fiction is based yeah. exactly. on. Exactly. And that's, people love stories. Yeah, people talk in the psychology world about about aberrant salience and just finding salience in lots of different parts of it. I mean, it's the premise of all my favorite movies. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, let's also remember that people are spending a tremendous amount of time online on things having nothing to do with politics. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, they are. There are games. There are amusements. There are all kinds of communities that are populating. Yeah, and, the and they don't have to do with re-electing Donald Trump. So, th- there's a fracturing of discourse that's going on now, and a, a dismantlement of a kind of civic culture that's extremely dangerous, but has no particular beneficiaries in terms of which politicians will get elected as a result. Here's a question I think for all three of you, actually. How can we teach and inform not just students but the public generally? How to be wary and break out of the filter bubbles that are such a threat to independent thought and action? How do we convince both tech and media generally to alter their systems to break the bubbles they've been creating? Boy, those are big questions. Yeah. <laughs> Got any answers? <laughs> I mean, that, I, I, I think that's the enterprise of the, the teaching enterprise of the university is to teach critical thinking, to teach skepticism, to teach, you know, asking about evidence to. Um, to try to educate students into um, about evidence-based argumentation. Um, the question about the broader public is a harder one because the university doesn't have as yeah, many right. um, touches on the, on the broader public. Yeah. Andrew? Well, this is why I'm obsessed with the Rorian notion about cultural vocabularies. It's, um, 
you have to, it's, it's not an easy task and it's probably ultimately not going to be a successful one, but you have to try to create a vocabulary that's more cohesive, that's more functional, that addresses people's tangible lived experience what and their political needs. What do you mean create a, co- in sort of on the ground, what does that mean to create well, vocabulary? Well, on the ground it means through our sense-making institutions such as journalism, all these institutions that are broken, through our movies, through mm. our, you know, this is why, another reason why politics is downstream of culture, because when you have, you know, this is why everybody's so upset that the most popular movie in America seems to be promoting an incel rebellion. That matters, because people um, take messages from movies more than they take messages from, you know, what the things they're supposed to take messages from. So I think it's a long-term project of trying to make our cultural vocabulary coherent and functional and also actually tangibly meaningful. Let's also keep in mind how the internet makes us money. And, and these things, these dysfunctions that we're quite properly deploring are integral mm-hmm. to the way in which the internet is structured, the way it's microeconomics. Mm-hmm. And, and these, so these filter bubbles and, and the, the, the kind of emotional activating kind of content and the memes and all the rest of it, this is all this is all purposeful. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a reason why at Christchurch, YouTube has never explained how much money it made from the Christchurch massacre, mm-hmm. from the live footage that went out and certain people downloaded. They made money from that. Mm-hmm. Now, that is disturbing. And, and there, let's start with the hijacking, if you like, of personal data and the way in which that data is being bought and sold and traded in a way that, without compensating mm-hmm. the people's data it is. So uh, there's a, a huge challenge which has to do with taking apart, with the watchmaker taking apart the, the watch mm-hmm. of the Internet and looking at w- impermissible ways mm-hmm. in which money is being made. I would also just say, uh, to add on that in a, more, in a slightly hopeful direction, which is not usually my stock and trade, the, 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 there are very, very pernicious business models, and I think social media is one of them, that can change over time, tobacco, gambling, as a result of a shift in cultural vocabulary. The thing that made the tobacco business model change was not that the business model changed. It's just that they were shamed out of being as successful at it. So here's an interesting question about whether this is happening internationally or whether this is isolated and confined to the United States or it's more predominant here in the United States. Yeah, I think it is happening internationally. And my my wife kept asking me to put in more and more stuff about Europe and other countries. And I just said, well, do you really want to help me edit a 900-page book? And then, so, you know, I... uh, I just had to c- confine it to America. This is a big enough country. And, uh, but yeah, I think um, Salvini, I think Duterte, I think Bolsonaro, I think Boris Johnson, I think the, these things are all essentially just symptoms of the same causes. So we have come to the end at 7.15. I know there's some questions we didn't get to. I looked at them quickly. I could say many of them are answered in the book, I hate to say. <laughs> I, don't get any, I, don't get I don't get any cut of the, I don't get any cut of the proceeds. But yeah. um, for those of you who can, it's an exceptional book. And I want to thank Dean Wasserman, Chancellor Christ, and in particular, Andrew, for coming out and for this excellent evening. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks. It was fun.